When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, March 21st, the Avocado Turd Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Anna. Where's the accent? I know, Where's right? the accent? Um, I'm ready to move to Australia. Uh, this is just a temporary return to New York. I loved it there. Is that true? Yeah, I loved really? it there. I had such a good time. It was. It's also like beautiful in a time when New York City is not particularly beautiful. Um, and it just was an easy, kind of wonderful seeming way of life. Huh. Wonderful seeming. I'm sure there are problems. Oh, totally. (laughs) Let me introduce Marsha before we keep talking about Australia. Hi, Marsha is in the D.C. studios. Marsha Chatlin, professor of history at Georgetown, who you know from the other show usually, but now she's joining us. Hi, Marsha. Hi. I was not in Australia last week. (laughs) I know. Neither was I. I had such a good time when I was in Australia. It's like just exotic, but also familiar. Yeah. So it's kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, like, it's not exhaustingly exotic because English, but it's so different. So it's just perfect. I loved it. <laughs> Even though I wasn't there. Um, okay. Well, before we get going, I will say that Slate Plus is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year. So if you want to come drink with us and chat with us, we would love to see you. Uh, we're hosting parties on April 3rd in D.C., Brooklyn, and San Francisco. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. We would love to hang out with you. All right. Are we ready to jump in? Yeah, our let's topics do it. today. Let's do it. The college admission scandal, which I can't wait to talk about. It's been around a while, but I have not had you ladies to discuss it with. Are they blaming the moms more than the dads? Plus, a lot of other questions to discuss. Beto, we're finally truly discussing Beto. This is because of Noreen um, and her <laughs> horniness of the electorate theory. Uh, but that's not all we're going to talk about. We're actually going to talk in a serious way, maybe, maybe not, about the candidate. Uh, also, finally, Shrill, Hulu's loose adaptation of Lindy West's memoir, uh, which has been airing this week. Then in our Slate Plus segment, Noreen, you want to say what we're going to talk about? We are going to talk about whether it's sexist that March Madness brackets are always for the men's tournament. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. That is what we're going to talk about. Exactly. I just filled out my brackets last night. Who'd you um, pick? So, uh, well, lots of people. You mean who did I pick to win? I'm not going to tell you that. But uh, okay. Um, but I um, but I did feel weird about it because we're discussing this topic. I was like, I don't know, you know. But anyway, <laughs> we'll get to it. I have mixed feelings about that one. All right, let's jump in with the admission scandal, also called Operation Varsity Blues, which I don't think people use enough. As a, as a title for it. Like, people don't use it in headlines or anything, even though it's so excellent. Can I admit something? Um, I've never seen Varsity yeah. Blues, and so I don't fully get the reference. I think people are just assuming that this movie starring James Vanderbeek was far more successful than it was, although I appreciate <laughs> that the FBI is up on it. Well, I just love the idea of FBI agents sitting around, 
like I, I love how they're allowed to show their goofy hand. It's like a real serious investigation, you know? Yeah. Um, but they also have fun. It's like they're planning the movie about themselves <laughs> before even the movie <laughs> airs. Yeah, totally. It's like we're fun guys. We're just not always serious. Anyway, so uh, you've probably heard something about it. The FBI charged more than 50 people in a college admission scam for paying people to take SATs for their kids, for coaches to fake recruit them for sports they did not play. There is a lot to get exercised about, like modern parenting mores, the meritocracy scam, the lazy, clueless privilege, dumb influencers. Uh, But I think I'm going to start with the easy question, or maybe it's not the easy question, are the moms versus the dads, both who's on the list, who got charged, and how we as a culture have digested this? So let's start with the case that is most easily up our alley and might prove our point, which is Felicity Huffman and William Macy. Noreen, do you know enough to just lay it out? Like, like who was blamed? What was the deal with the two of them? Sure. Felicity Huffman was actually arrested for her role in... Um uh, paying bribes to get her oldest daughter into college. Um, they decided with their second daughter that she could do it on um, her own. Uh, they were caught on, the couple was caught on a wiretap, although I believe Felicity Huffman was the one on the phone herself. She seems to have been more involved. William H. Macy is in the background, sort of, um, you know, chiming in a little bit about which school he wants his daughter to be able to get into with her SAT scores. Um, and at one point he, you know, the, uh, William Singer, the, the guy who is running the scam, um, you know, says the amount of money and the, and the SAT scores that they're going to get the daughter and William H. Macy affirms cool in the background, um, just kind of offline, but he, he was not him. He doesn't say cool, cool. (laughs) Right. And he's, he's not named. He's, he's referred to as spouse, um, in the FBI paperwork. And Felicity Huffman is, of course, not just named, but arrested. And so the question is, why was he not arrested? Is it, you know, sexist? We don't know yet why um, why he wasn't fully. Uh, it seems like the FBI um, just doesn't have enough evidence to link him to it, right? He, he seems to have been less involved in general. I think it's it's so unlikely that the FBI would be like, you know what? Let's 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 let the man off easy. Like they wanted to get everyone involved uh, in this that they could. They must just not have been able to make a case on him. So this is interesting because I think it really speaks to how you know elites kind of have access to certain things, and at the same time even among people who have all the resources for all the kind of family help and social help that some of these gendered roles of who gets involved in what still remains. And I think it's kind of interesting that um, Felicity Huffman was interviewed by Leslie Stahl, I believe, on 60 Minutes a few years back. And she had asked her about her children. And Felicity Huffman was kind of praised for um, pushing back a little bit and saying, you know, if I were a man, would you ask me if my kids were, you know, the most important part of my life? And really kind of resisted that framing as a professional actress um, being, you know, asked these questions. And so I think that what's interesting about the focus on the moms, it really shows that this idea of who is tasked with the administrative life of their families is so much mom, even among these families in which a lot of this work can be outsourced. And so I think that this is really revelatory about the ways that the men who've been dragged into this um, 
process that theirs is about kind of influence and the moms are about the details of the scam. Wait, can you say more about that? Because Mm -hmm. actually, I I went through many phases of thinking about this where at first I was like, well, but there's a lot more dads in the scam, actually. Like, if you look at the long list, the dads are less famous. They're not reality TV stars. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, sitcom stars. So we don't actually talk about them. But there are a lot more dads that are implicated and then I started to think about, how, like what you just said, how do we digest their implication, right? Like the big New York Times op-ed this weekend was about steam shovel parenting, and it had this lead about moms who do crazy things to kind of get the barriers out of their kids' ways. So it is like we focus on what you just said, like the administrative details as opposed to just like the behind the scene, scammy status stealing? Um, Or is it what you just said, that we just view what the the dads are doing very differently than we view what the moms are doing? Like the dads get a higher order kind of crime in our minds. I just think think that the interpretive lens of this is that um, the moms are are you know doing are doing um outrageous things in the management of this but when men use their influence to get things for their kids they're doing kind of business as they should i guess mm-hmm. i find that whole um lens on this scandal to be slightly ridiculous like in a weird way it reminds me of when everyone was celebrating um, Gina Haspel for for rising to the top of the CIA, you know, that she had, you know, she was breaking the glass ceiling for tortures everywhere, right? There's like a little something of like not sometimes someone can just um, we can we can just sort of be mad at them for the way that they behave. And there doesn't have to be a feminist angle on the fact that like they're being whether it's villainized or celebrated, there doesn't necessarily have to be a feminist angle like I don't know. I just had this allergic reaction to the way that we were talking about feminism in relationship to this scandal. Oh, I think that um, I think that there is a lot wrong with this scandal. Absolutely. But I do think that it's important to kind of take a step back and assess how we um, how we judge and evaluate behavior, I think, across gender lines. And I think that there is something um, visceral, I guess, in the reactions of um, the just the whole idea of helicopter parenting and parents who do too much. I really do feel like there's a way that that is highly gendered and um, perceived as the problem of mothers and women and families. And so I think that in some ways this scandal is an extension of some of those impulses and judgments about mothering. But I agree with you 100% that every bit of this is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, think about how you know, what men used to do for their sons, like the Bush family, right? So you had a son who wasn't quite smart enough to make it into your alma mater. And the things that it would be expected, the money you would be expected to give if you were a certain kind of privileged family to let your son in and how the culture would digest something like that, you know? And I I get it's different. You're not like outright lying and like photoshopping your kid's face on, on, you know, sports, on high school sports athletes. So it's like, this is like a different order of cheating. So it's not exactly the same, but I'm not sure I feel any differently about it. Like, I think you're right, Marsha. We see that like, like men sort of like bringing their sons along to their alma mater as just the way the world works. You know, this is like how power and influence extends and, and gets perpetuated. Um, But then if moms do it, admittedly in this outlandish way, like it becomes a kind of, it becomes a kind of forum to agitate about modern parenting mores and hysterical hysteria, 
which we all know is like that's like mom hysteria. Like steam shovel parenting is something moms do. Well, and there also is kind of an interesting strand of sociological criticism attached to scandal that, um, you know, people have been been using their privilege to get their kids into college forever. There's just a way it's done, right? If you're in the right circles, you know that you don't have to do something as gauche as literally pay a bribe or like fire up Photoshop that you would donate in this way that, you know, which may or may not even be to the university. It could be to like the trustees favorite charity that there are just there are just sort of like handshake ways to make this happen. Um, And that you know, someone who's outside of that historic circle of privilege, which might be because, you know, it's a woman or an actress who didn't go to college, um, wouldn't know how that's done. So there is a way that it is. I could see the gendered angle. I mean, it it, it actually with, um, you know, with the Full House actress and her influencer daughter, it actually that's the one place where I felt a little bit of sympathy. She said, oh, my parents really, the the influencer, Olivia Jade, said, oh, my parents really wanted me to go to college because they didn't go to college, right? So they really valued this as a way to get her to do, you know, something better than what they'd done. And all she wanted to do was to make YouTube v- beauty tutorials. Oh, well, I had two thoughts. One is I was wondering if we just digest it in in that mom way because it's more fun, like the big little lies way. It's like much more fun to think about than some, you know, dour dad, like just wanting some status for his son or whatever. Like it just might be like this is just big little lies. Like if you make the movie of it, the more interesting thing is like the Olivia Dunn story and like the mom pushing her agenda on the kid who just wants to be a YouTube star. Yeah, totally. Definitely. And I think what's interesting is like, I feel like this story, especially as someone in higher education, is like one train running on these parallel tracks about how people are talking about higher education. And so if we think about this academic school year, which can't end soon enough, um, with a number of these conversations, we have the affirmative action challenge um, at Harvard. Um, I think that I'm also linking this to this discourse that has been circulating for a while about college is not necessary and the fetishization of people who drop out of college. And that's the Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, this person went to college, but they were so entrepreneurial that college was holding them back, right? And so there's this kind of romance of dropping out that I think has um, been incubated with Silicon Valley and tech folks. And then, you know, all of these questions about free college. And the fact of the matter, all of these moments I think people lose sight of the fact that there are tons of colleges and these young people could have gone to a number of colleges. There are more colleges that would have accepted these kids than rejected them. But there's a strange way in which elite schools get to overdetermine how people view higher education and how people invest or divest from it. And so I hope that at the end of the scandal and after everyone kind of um, enjoys the lascivious details of parents acting badly, they can take a step back and not only think about the various legal ways in which we normalize inequality and access to education, but to also remember there are lots of colleges that are serving lots of populations that are doing incredible work with very little resources that are always kind of pushed out of the frame when we talk about higher education. 
So why do you think that is? Like, why? Like, why? That's It's one thing that baffled me. It's like, why, you know, you have these kids like Olivia Dunn, who doesn't, who who, who was, you know, called out for, you know, I think she, she maybe was on Instagram or she tweeted, like, I don't feel like studying right now. Like, she didn't particularly necessarily want to go to USC. This was her mother's dream for her. Um, why? Why the status symbol? Like, part of me was thinking, oh, maybe it's good now that we want this status symbol universally for all of our kids, no matter who they are, boy or girl. Like, why Why? Why was it so important? There's, there's, there's not just a million colleges. There's a million really good and prestigious colleges. So, like, why did they have to go to these? Like, what, what does that say, that they had to go to the, you know, Yale, Georgetown, USC, whatever. Well, she had to go to USC because uh, she needed to be on the trustees yacht. Um, so that <laughs> that case in particular is obvious. But it, it does become like, uh, yeah, it's like an accessory, right? Like I have this brand of, of um, bag that I carry and I have this brand of diploma, right? Like I just you get the sense with many of the people involved in this that it did the education itself didn't matter, right? If the education actually mattered, you would make your kid like try to learn whatever it is you have to learn to do a little better on the ACT, whether or not, you know, those tests actually measure anything or not. You do have to try to learn something to do that. If they cared about that, they would have done that. Instead, they care about just like, can this person go out in the world and sort of say, oh, Harvard, and then have everyone, you know, sort of feel uh feel the 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 smart the brand of smart coming off their child or or with usc the brand of cool coming off their child it's like literally education as accessory and i think that's really um and you're absolutely right and one of the things that's just been really difficult for me this week as um a faculty member of color as someone who advises a lot of students of color both at georgetown and other universities this really visceral gut feeling about how much um students particularly at prestigious schools, but I think at a number of colleges and universities, as a student of color, you're made to feel so suspect and undeserving and not um, worthy of the opportunity to go to school that on one hand, I think it's another example of the poignancy of achievement that is often met with contempt. And so this story about these hyper-privileged kids who did not care about school at all and the great lengths that their parents went to to get them into school because their parents had all of these resources. I think there have been a lot of really interesting articles and reflections and tweets about what this does then for students who are still at the margins of higher education statistically as well as socially. And so I think that the kind of reason why this story I think will resonate for a really long time is that it conjures up every kind of feeling of alienation, isolation, of of belonging among populations in which going to a very prestigious school actually can fundamentally change the trajectory of your life and future generations. And so I think it's a reminder that prestigious colleges do different things for different people. Mm-hmm. And what happens when there's an entire class of people where all it does is just um, help them consolidate more power. But doesn't this equalize the like, does aren't they laid bare now? Like, like the big the big feeling was you guys don't belong here. You know, like when this whole system was legal, when it was just like legacies are legal. Legacy is insane. Legacy is an insane idea as a way to run an, an, an elite college. And they take up a huge, shocking percentage of classes at really prestigious college colleges. And I feel like what this scandal does is make 
rich kids and privileged kids suspect. Like, people are now looking at them and saying, do you really belong here? Like, you don't even want to be here. You know, so it's like, I mean, really, like, like, um, like, you know, I I have been listening to college age kids this week talk about like, well, maybe it's that one. Like that one doesn't ever seem to go to the sports thing. Like maybe it's that one. It's like suddenly the privileged kids look like, you know, like like outsiders, you know, like imposters, basically. Don't you think that's sort of a temporary moment, unfortunately? Like that's the depressing thing about this all is that, um it does work, right? You get like, you're absolutely right, Marsha, to point out how much elite college can be a vehicle for many people. Um, I have felt that in my own life that it's given me opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And but at the same time, like it, all it does is get me into the rooms where these kids were going to go anyway, whether I, you know, they got a D in a course that I got an A in, you know, like that's the really and, and mm-hmm. we're in this moment where yes, everyone's paying attention to it. But I think the moment is going to pass. And also I think college is a hothouse environment where people are thinking in that way. And when you graduate, people are more thinking, yeah, okay, fine. So, so they like, you know, didn't get into college on their own merits, but their dad can still give me this advantage in this other way. If I make a deal with this person and, you know, like, I just think that the privilege just snaps right back. Yeah. And I think that, what this is, the cautionary tale of all of this is that, um, you know, when we normalize inequality so much that there isn't, I don't know if there's like a real sense of clarity as to why this was a problem. I think some people find it funny, embarrassing. Um, maybe they're going to question some of the credentials of the elite, but the entire infrastructure of education is built on exacerbating inequality that I think the test preps and the selective admission schools and the white flight and the redlining that contributes to school disparity. I really hope that the voices that are trying to connect these two issues together, I hope that they can really help people learn something different about how we react to these moments. Yeah, my my um, my um, my high school alma mater, Stuyvesant High School, was all over Twitter for the last mm-hmm. two days for yeah, revelations about who passes that test. And that's a more complicated issue because you can't actually, you know, you can't tweak the test. Your parents can't buy you into the school. And still, there's just a ridiculous amount of inequality. I just love um, this. Can we just say that this was just such a good scandal? Because, yes, we can have a serious discussion like the one that we're having. But it's also just ridiculous and humorous. And people were doing bad Photoshop to get into college. Incredible. It just, it, it's it's like it, I I have never had more fun than I have had like reading about this scandal, which is maybe gross on my part, but whatever. No, but it was also like the way the kids were like, I, my first question was like, did the kids know, yeah. you know? And I guess it's some, cause how do you know what you like? How, how can you not tell if your ACT score jumped that many <laughs> points, you know, or like if you're getting some weird private tutor, is that like a thing where, you know, people, the, the sort of rich and famous just like expect things to happen in a weird different way for themselves than other people have. But like there was the one kid who was confused when like the conversation about track came up with his dad's friends. And so, <laughs> So anyway, yeah, honey, yeah. just just pose on this erg, just just leap in the air like you're doing, you know, a big a big tennis thing. Don't worry about it; it's just for fun. Right. <laughs> just do it. Just do it. Oh my god! Well, listeners, if you have any thoughts about the college admission scandal, please share them with us at thewaves at slate.com. We would love to hear it. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. So, Beto O'Rourke, uh, in the unforgettable words of the great Noreen Malone, the American electorate is having a horny moment. Thus, we have Beto O'Rourke. This is totally an unfair introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Sorry, Beto. The photogenic, Instagrammable, beloved presidential candidate from El Paso. All right. Now I'm going to do the really fair intro. Uh, so what do we actually know about Beto O'Rourke? He comes from a local political family. He has raised a ton, ton of money. Uh, he was a political celebrity before he even announced his presidency. He has an HBO documentary coming out about him. Uh, but it's not really 100% clear where all what all the enthusiasm is about. So I think that that's what we should try and figure out here. Maybe we will start with the Vanity Fair profile. The Vanity Fair profile is notable because it did, you know, Vanity Fair is not a, it's not Politico. Um, it, it, it is, it puts you in that mid zone between sort of important figure and celebrity. Like if you get that big a Vanity Fair pro- profile, it means that the culture is treating you somewhat as a celebrity, especially given this early in the presidential process. What impression, I'll ask you, Marsha, did you get just, just, just kind of reading the full Beta O'Rourke uh, Beta O'Rourke treatment. Like, what's what stuck out about him and about how we talk about him? Well, I think what's interesting is he has a lot of political baggage from his dad and from his uh, father-in-law and the ways that um, his wife's family kind of made their money on real estate deals and their relationship um to El Paso, as well as his father's um, attempt to create, you know, these factories on the border. I feel like there's a lot of stuff there. And what's interesting about it, that stuff gets submerged um, under the kind of gloss of the Vanity Fair profile. And while I don't think that the profile mm-hmm. necessarily was bad, I do think it's interesting um, per our previous conversation about elites and privilege, um, the way that some of his baggage doesn't seem to go with him. And so even when Ted Cruz tried to, you know, portray him as, you know, this flaky guy and talk about his DUI, I find that a little less troubling than some of this financial stuff in his his portfolio that I do wonder if um, a candidate of a color or a woman candidate could just kind of glide by it. But I think that there is something about these people who seem like they're a little Teflon um, that works in the political arena. And so I'm curious about his entry into 2020 who will have the capacity to really call into question some of these ties um, and not because he has to be tethered to them forever, but because that usually is the tone of politics. 
Okay, I had a totally different take on the Vanity Fair profile, which is that it was actually very subtly done and devastating. Um, I mean, it opens... Interesting. Oh, totally. It opens... I mean, sure, there there are the heroic photos with his, like, dog and his pickup truck and his sad eyes, and he's just in it to win it. Uh, But it opens with um, his kid saying that he's going to cry if he runs for president. He's going to cry every day. And Beto's just like, eh, that'll be fine. And you go through, like... It it shows how his wife didn't want him to run. Uh, It shows him, uh, you know, giving a sort of ridiculous quote saying about about, you know, how it's a disadvantage for him to be a white male in this race. But but um, he's going to get through it by hiring people of color. It it goes through all of the um, sort of messy, uh, you know, sort of favor dealing in his background, his the way that his. father-in-law sort of bailed him out while also miring him in scandal it goes through his uh lack of a any kind of real record on anything it makes him look i think it just makes him look like kind of a weak guy who is totally driven by ego who's mostly good at standing in front of crowds and pretending and like you know speaking politics but pretending he's still in his punk band like i thought i thought that the quotes were sort of chosen to subtly devastate to to sort of show him as an empty suit someone who got really excited about the rock star way that bernie sanders was being um received in 2016 and then totally reconfigured his entire political um you know his entire political thing to be closer to bernie sanders right previously he'd been a democrat who voted with republicans like a third of the time who campaigned for a republican but then bernie sanders gets a lot of attention so all of a sudden beto running against ted cruz is not taking money from PACs. he's doing this super pure campaign he's just someone who like he just is sort of mutable he follows trends i i think the vanity fair piece made that all very clear Sorry, I have a That's lot of- so interesting. What I no, no, that was great. What I picked up from the Vanity Fair piece was that he belonged to the school of, you know, which I have I have belonged to the school in my life is if you process anything out loud, then it's OK. You know, it's like any the Teflon is a really good word for it, but it's a different kind of Teflon because he's not an avoider or a repressor. It's just like you tell him about the scandal. He's he says like, yeah, there was the scandal. You know, you say that his wife is now home taking care of the kids all the time and they've sort of flipped their, you know, their original egalitarian relationship. And he's like, yeah, haha, my wife is home with the kids. You know, you say that he's like a white he, he just says, yeah, I'm a white privileged guy, you know. Yeah. And so here's the ways I'm going to be woke. It's like he just he just like it's this weird authenticity. It's like this. He was raised in the kind of Gen X confessional age where you just say all the things and you have a slight ironic distance from all the things. And then and then that in and of itself is a badge of honor. See, this is interesting because I think <laughs> I, I, I agree with all of you. And I and I guess the question is. Does this resonate? Because I think that with a certain type of centrist, white, liberal voter, this works. Like, I find all of this gross, but I think other people I could imagine being like, did you see that amazing piece about Beto? And really about a lens. So from my lens, it's like, oh, this is just um, feeding the deep desire to have this kind of um, progressive and name only politician who can do like both sides stuff and 
you know, I like I feel totally. like this is very, very um, attractive to a critical mass of voters. And for me, I'm rolling my eyes through the whole thing, but I see it. So I don't know. I, I think it can be devastating if that's a lens that you bring to this process. But I think that this actually like helps him a lot. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's what really gets under my skin about it is that he's got that this veneer of cool, right? Like he, he loves to talk about his like rock and roll history, but he has frankly kind of the most traditional marriage of anyone in the race. He made his wife like sit silently next to him in a three minute video. He made that off the cover mark, which by the way, she has said bothered her that he like quote unquote sometimes helped her raise the kids. I mean, they actually have, uh, and he is a very traditional guy who had this like rumspring in his 20s and then went back to take over to take up the family mantle and to marry a woman nine years younger than him who came from money and then to enter into politics like he is just like a surface level update on a very old-fashioned trope and i think that's what people are responding to like like again his, his the fact that he is but a white male but it's not traditional because he's not presenting himself like that you can't that's get so you surface can't level slide huh? past that but what does that mean? Like, he doesn't have this thing where it's like, here's my set of issues. He's not, he it does, I, it doesn't count for much for me. It makes me crazy in certain ways because it feels like then you get to have your cake and eat it too. Like, you get to do all the things, but because you acknowledge, weirdly, when I was watching, when I watch Beto videos and like read about him, I think about Doug Copeland. I have no idea why. Um, the novelist, like, there's this weird way in which you're just kind of tiredly aware of everything and that marks you, that gives you a certain generational marker and it just allows you to get away with anything. It's like he really can get away with anything, you know? He just admits yeah. it and owns it. What kind of what what has he ever done run successfully on his own? Like what what is the evidence that he's not just like I kept thinking of in in Australia we saw this play How to Rule the World about um, this this white actor who just says platitudes um, and is elected like content free. I just kept thinking about Beto. What has he ever run successfully? He's literally failing upwards, and because he's doing it in this like charming reality bites way, we're supposed to be like, okay, well, just because it's against Donald Trump, it's fine. We can we can sort of perpetuate this. But I just I see no evidence that he would actually be good at the presidency, that he cares about anything more than being in front of crowds and stoking his own ego. Like he's talking, he's in every, you know, in in every um, interview, he's talking about like Joseph Campbell and fulfilling his myth. I mean, he's like a narcissist and we have not liked, I mean, I know everyone who runs for president is on some level a narcissist, but he's a narcissist without policy ideas. Why? Like, I don't understand the... He doesn't have no policy ideas. I feel like that's the low-hanging fruit way that everybody's digesting this, so everybody likes to say he doesn't have any policy positions or we don't know what he believes. That's not actually true because he did run for Senate, so he does have positions on things. To me, it's just like, well, compared to who? Like, compared to Elizabeth Warren? Like, if you want to talk about someone who has a long history of a well-developed worldview. Like, you may disagree with her worldview, but she has been committed to it for several decades, has, has you know, passed many bills and advocated for many things that are in keeping with that worldview. It is a worldview that has many parts, and I can totally get it, you know? Um, whereas it's not like I don't know what he believes, but, like, really? I, I couldn't. Because he... Well, for, okay, so well, immigration. Could, so immigration, he had this big rally to, counter, to count... a big rally at the border to counteract Donald Trump, and in that rally, 
he said, oh, let's tor- tear down the border wall, which, by the way, is not actually something he re- he believes. He just said it in the heat of the moment in like the rhetoric. Someone asked him in January a very basic level question about immigration policy. And he was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. And floated a bunch of ideas after like sort of stammering. I, I just think, sure, he's not like to- he- he's he's been in politics. He like has worked in the field. I just don't understand what about him is presidential. Well, let's digest that because people are so enthusiastic and giving him so much money. And I like when I go to coffee shops, like young people have like Beto for president stickers on their laptops. So 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 given everything we've just said, like, why? What is that about then? So I think it's this is this one's a hard one because I think that in in the absence of people who are, you know, charismatic and interesting and um, have really strong policy positions, I guess he could rise to the top. But we're at a moment where um, I think the cultivation of similarly aged um, political um, potential is actually pretty high, that there's something about the attention and the deep desire to anoint him um, is, I think, part of what we're reacting to. So there's a number of people who have written articles like, why Beto, not Stacey? And I think that yeah. in the context of a world that has Stacey Abrams, who also, um, you know, kind of lost a, a race that was nationally viewed, I think sometimes the impulse against him is this idea of, will the Democratic Party kind of buy into someone who is just fine um, to the exclusion of, of people who I think um, are able to appeal to some of those same impulses that Beto can um, stoke, but who are just better. And so I guess this idea of failing upward, I, it, it sticks because this idea that um, – it's not just that he's failing upward. It's just that no one is putting any kind of um, obstacle or any type of hoop for him to jump in front of. It's like the way has been cleared. And I think about yeah. you know President Obama lacked some experience. And President Obama had all of these things. And there was a lot of like the charisma machine. But there were fo- folks who were trying to like get in front of him at every turn. And he was just really good at maneuvering that. And I, I think I just wish I saw some of that as well, so that there isn't this kind of overwhelming sense that this is all it takes for this kind of guy to make it. And maybe that is more of a visceral reaction than a political um, analysis. But I do think that with all that's at um, all with all the things that are on the table in 2020, I'm afraid that that impulse is going to overwhelm uh, the Democratic Party. I I also think it's about like who gets to be cool, right? Like mm. like the way that we receive him is kind of like um oh yeah, he's like a politician but he's a cool politician. He like he you know reads these cool books and he has this rock history like and he he gets to sort of work it out in public and be this Gen X icon and you like by all accounts, you know, behind the scenes, Kirsten Gilbrand is like super fun in a totally different way. That is so not her public image. Right. 
Um, it's just like I can't imagine a woman going around Iowa and jumping up on countertops and acting like she was at a rock show or walking around talking about the like <laughs> mythic symbol journey that she's on to fulfill her destiny while her husband's at home. You know, I mean, the, he's gotten a lot of shit for this while well, her husband's at home with the three kids, you know, like just out there finding himself. I just I know I know it feels a little cheap to be like reverse the gender roles, but truly reverse the gender roles like or or you know make him not a not white person like it just oh imagine stacy abrams being like 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 <laughs> this isn't about you know this isn't about the crooked election system this is just like me this is me like i'm just feeling myself here yeah. i'm just like feeling and this I... moment i'm feeling <laughs> yes. that the crowd is feeling me too which is something that he has said like the crowd feels me and it's amazing like i don't even i can't explain it guys it's just like they feel me i feel them it's so I, it's, good it's i can't so stop annoying. you know I mean, I think for any woman who's good at anything, this guy just triggers every feeling you have of sitting in a meeting and this guy rolls in out of nowhere. And I and while it may not be entirely fair to pull like, why not Stacy? They're similar in age. But oh, my gosh, you know, like Stacey Abrams is so much better than everyone else who has emerged for anything in the history of the world and her ability to (laughs) maneuver criticism. I mean, and I mean that seriously, you know, when they tried to ding her on her student loan stuff, she's like, aren't we all screwed with debt? And everyone's like, yeah, we are her openness about talking about, you know, how her brother has struggled, you know, about her family and poverty. I mean, this is as good as it's going to get. And just the inability for her to be fully seen and what it took for her to kind of get where she was and this guy feeling like he's strolling in I think that I think that is a serious place to have a conversation and I think that's something that I keep on seeing happen with white male candidates is everyone asks them well you know you're a white guy and you know no one wants white guys I would love to know when white men weren't preferred for everything yeah there is this huge (laughs) lie myth that's happening that the Democratic Party is really struggling with how much power to give white men and like what an incredible lie that is being told and what it does it just Stokes resentment towards women, towards women of color, towards men of color who want to be part of this process. It's an amazing um, sleight of hand, but it it would be amazing if Beto could take a step back and saying, you know what, I think we really need to interrogate that idea. Well, that's when he would get me like on board. It lets him be a punk outsider if he, you know, gets to say, yeah, it's really it's really not my time. And I want to acknowledge those people, but I'm still going to go for it. Like there's no other universe in which (laughs) Beto O'Rourke scion of el paso is an underdog except for this one and wait i just want to leave you with what i think is a very revelatory um anecdote about his character when Mm -hmm. we're evaluating whether he's actually a cool guy when um the in this great washington post profile about their marriage um apparently uh there there's this anecdote revealed that um when Amy and Beto first had a baby, Beto thought it was super funny to take a turd from their baby's diaper and put it in like some kind of bowl in the kitchen and tell his wife it was avocado. Like he thought what? that was super funny. So I just want everyone to think about that when they think about Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> wow, you were better. Why did that bother you, you so much? What? Why did that bother me so much? Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that. I noticed that. Because it was just like a dick move. It's just a dick move. She was probably exhausted. He would, yeah, yeah. she was probably exhausted. Like, who wants to be like, oh, okay, I guess this avocado went brown and, and like realize it's like 
a shit from your baby and you're probably spending a lot of time dealing with diapers and it's like not funny to you. It's like something to do. I don't know. It's just this idea that like it's such a funny joke, but it's not. It's so not. I don't know. It's just so funny because I read that and I was like, Curtis Sittenfeld, like, can I get Curtis Sittenfeld on the line? Like, I want the Amy novel. She's got to start writing the Amy novel now, you know, know. like the world from Amy's perspective. That is the most disturbing Um, thing I've heard all day. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The avocado turd. Oh, boy. Uh, All right. Well, listeners, if you have Beto thoughts, if you want to justify why you have the Beto sticker on your laptop uh, or why you hate the person sitting in the cafe across from you with the Beto sticker on their laptop, uh, please write us at thewavesatslate.com or tweet at us. All right, let's talk about Shrill, Hulu's loose adaptation of writer Lindy West's memoir about growing up fat. And fat is her term. Part of Lindy West's life and writing is about reclaiming that term and teaching the world what it's like to live in a fat body. Stars A.D. Bryant as Annie Easton, a girl figuring out how to live without constantly apologizing for herself and her body and also just genuinely finding her voice and confidence in all kinds of ways. I think maybe the most obvious thing to discuss is the difference between Annie Easton, how how the show portrays Annie Easton and what Lindy West's memoir is like. So how would you guys describe Annie Easton, the character? Like, like, like what are some adjectives? Like, how does she come across to you guys in the series? She's sort of gentle, right? She's an interesting yeah. mix of confident and not confident. Um I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is a show that's about the moment when she's finding her voice. But she is someone who um, doesn't she sort of quietly knows what she's about. But she's also um, uh, I don't know how to put, quite how to put this, but but she's not an, an outgoing person in her uh, confidence. Let's say it that way. Yeah. 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 So she's you know, this is based on uh, Lindy West, who I have. Um, heard on podcasts and I've read her stuff and um, she has these moments in the show where she's really assertive and she's angry and she is unafraid and then she kind of melts back into this quiet and so I think that it probably is reflective of how a person like slowly comes into their own but I don't know if the title shrill really gets to the complexity of I think what Lindy West is talking about about the inability for our society to tolerate women's voices and, and, and women taking up physical space. So shrill is about uh, the title, I think, is about um, how all women are considered shrill if they say anything that asserts their confidence or their feelings of being um, of having a right to be present. But I think that that title then sets up this show in a way that it doesn't feel like it's fully communicating, um, I think, the way that I see Lindy West as she appears as a public figure. So there's some disconnect there. And at the same time, I think that it's radical to see um, a television show where people look like people I see every day and my family and my friends. Like everyone looks like normal people. And that's actually really shocking um, to watch a television show where people are of various sizes. It's It's been my main struggle in watching this show, exactly what you just said, because Shrill is notes from a loud woman. Like, you, the, there must have been a writer's room decision because she's very 
passive, you know. And so in discussing kind of how do we portray her struggle, you know, from going to passive to owning herself, like how do we, you know, how do we make that successful? How do we show the transition? She can't start out as this as this, you know loud woman kind of claiming her place because then there's no arc to the story. But I have many moments watching the show thought, well, this she's too like they're not using A.D. Bryant's like comedic genius or her sharpness or yeah. her edges. Like it feels sometimes just like way too milk toast and soft. And and about what you just said, like seeing people who look like people I see, I you know, she just looks straight up beautiful to me all the time. Like in every shot walking down the street, she looks beautiful. And and what I'm mostly noticing about her is passivity, like just universal female passivity that doesn't have everything to do with her body, has something to do with her body. Um, but it's like sometimes I feel like the struggle is missing, like the edge, the strife, like, I, I you know, the, the pool episode, which is deep in, so I won't spoil it for you, is the one that was the most successful to me, partly because it was beautifully laid out as a story structure. But also because I could see the pain and I could see the struggle and it had a kind of history in her childhood and her parents were involved. And I I could like feel the pain a little more in that one. And the dancing was kind of a way for her to break free. Um, but in the other ones, I just feel like it's just so mushy. You well, know, it's, a, it's interesting that you say passive because I just had the thought that she the character is sort of a vessel for um, this set of ideas that Lindy West and the writers of the show want to get across. Like, the show was very watchable, but I found it sort of overly straightforward, right? Like, it was like, here Mm. is an idea that we want to tell you about fat acceptance, and we are going to tell it to you with, like, a small veneer of plot. But mostly, it, it felt like as if blog posts had been adapted rather than then <laughs> do you know what i mean like like there was this like yeah this- the comedy is broad and not sharp like the yeah. comedy with her trainer like especially it takes a while for it to get a little more subtle so in the first couple of episodes it felt like the comedy was very kind of network tv broad like here you've got a trainer who's telling her like there's a small it just felt broad yeah you yeah know? Like, and, but less uh, interesting than snl comedy would be but also sort of like full of li- these little teachable moments like here is the incident like every so every um you know, I feel like every sitcom like now has a moment where the character has a pregnancy scare and takes the morning after pill. But in this one, you learn that the morning after pill does not work for women over 175 pounds. Like, And I feel like I remember reading that blog post on Jezebel five years ago and being like, wow, interesting. You know, like it just felt um, it, it felt like an idea rather than a story. And I have not read Lindy West's memoir um, which I imagine is somewhat different, but I found that frustrating. And then, but then at the same time, that's how sitcoms have been since time immemorial, right? Like that, it, it was they're imparting values. These are just slightly different, more progressive slash maybe radical values than like family, you know, family togetherness or whatever. But why not dark? It doesn't go dark before it gets totally late is my issue. Totally, like I, don't, I don't mind teachable moments, but it's just not that dark, you know. One of the things I appreciated. So I think you're right. I think that there are moments in which the dialogue is everything a person who has struggled with their body and the world, you know, has felt and experienced. And I think that they try to kind of pace it, but sometimes the dialogue doesn't fully, like, it. sometimes it's like someone's explaining. So, like, when you're fat, this is how people treat you, and, like, this is the shit you have to listen to from your parents. And, you know, when the trainer says, your wrists are so small, you have a small frame. Like, there's something about that that deeply resonates. Um, but I think 
some of it is, again, in that conversion of the writing. But one of the things I thought was really interesting was um, it's so rare to see an abortion um, on any kind of television that there were these moments that I appreciated how they were telling this there were things that they did that was daring that then didn't kind of continue throughout. So I think the depiction of the abortion, I think the fact that there are sex scenes um, in which A.D. Bryant is having sex and um, that is a very rare thing for, um, for television to portray um, people of any size um, over, you know, a kind of standard actress or actor size having sex, which I thought was important. And the other part of it that that was interesting was the casting choices, that they're in Portland, but there's lots of people of color. And I kind of appreciated that as well. And so I think that um, there are elements to this that I appreciated watching because I don't get to see it very often. But I don't know if this piece kind of pushes the genre politically enough to actually have the, the the viewer think about what they see and what they don't see. I also appreciated the send off, um, the send up of uh, Dan Savage, um, who she has gotten into yes. a lot about his um, fat shaming and some of the stuff that he wrote in The Strangler. And so I think, um, you know, it was like pure revenge for her to have the Dan Savage character be awful, um, even though she claims like it's it's just a character. That that was like sharp satire of a certain kind of guy, and I kind of and and I loved that character because I hated him so much, right? And I did sort of crave a little bit more of that sense of cruelty. Like the point of the show is sort of to empower and to shift norms, which I do appreciate. And yet, as a viewer, I just wanted a little bit more tartness. Like this is maybe Mm -hmm. an unfair comparison, but I kept thinking about it versus girls and the time when yeah. girls launches a very well, it's different the same writers it's it's not it's not an unfair comparison it's like the same crew is it know? actually well so it's the same director kind of, yeah i guess it is same director yeah i mean there's some of the same people involved but it's like couldn't you push it even further you know yeah and like lena dunham and ad bryant have, are are very different comedic talents and they look very different and brooklyn and portland are different and yet the the shows felt in conversation with each other and it just felt a little bit like um, Girls, for whatever your issues with it, was a super subtly done show. And it made me a little depressed to see that the 2019 sort of answer to that is not more sophisticated than Girls. Like it's more it's it's more radical and it's more righteous, but it's not necessarily better television. Yeah, um, I'm not sure it's more radical because there were just unusual sex scenes in girls That's true. and unusual depictions of bodies in girls. Um, there are like it's weird. A lot of the edginess, I think, went into the side characters like the Dan Savage character. Also, Patty Harrison, the secretary, who's hilarious. Also, oh, yeah. her friend, like also the lesbian. Like there's a lot of stuff on the edges that they that they do, I think, really, really well. It's just the central storyline feels a little hesitant or at least a little more hesitant than Lindy West herself. Well, and it's it might just be a setup for a season two that gets more interesting, like for a person who's more fully comfortable in her own skin, then you can get into the sort of angrier aspects or just sort of fuck it up a little bit more. But um, yeah, I don't know. And I guess that's the part that is true to life. You know, a person who 
is slowly finding their voice will go like will express themselves in like a total fit of rage and then be like, oh, my God, sorry. Mm -hmm. So her hesitancy is probably more realistic than if we saw this huge evolution over a short period of time. Well, I do have to say, I think the show gets better as it moves along, like it finds its feet, it's a little edgier, the comedy's a little more specific, and so maybe it just takes a minute to find its voice, but it does it it does get better, more moving, more real as the plot progresses. So we hold out hope for that. Well, listeners, if you are fans of Shrill, not fans of Shrill, please let us know how and why. You can email us at thewavesatslate.com. All right, let's move on to our recommendations. Marsha, do you want to go first? Yes, my recommendation this week is a podcast. It's called Burn It All Down, and it is a feminist sports podcast. And it has wonderful hosts, um, Sharina Ahmed, Amir Rose Davis, Brenda Elsie, Lindsay Gibbs, and Jessica Luther, as well as Julie DeCaro. And they talk about sports. And I think that it's amazing to hear um, how knowledgeable they are about sports and how unafraid they are to really talk about the politics of sports and their respect and inclusion of women's sports and the larger sports dialogue. So if you enjoy sports and culture and you don't need to know tons about sports, but if you enjoy uh, feminist conversation, then tune in to Burn It All Down. Cool. Okay, I have got I'm doing a really weird thing right now. which I'm going to impose on you listeners. I've never done this in my entire life. I'm reading businessy books um, for reasons having to do with work and me trying to figure out kind of how how you work cultures, you know, and like how you create certain kinds of work cultures. And I was like, I went into it just kind of gritting my teeth. Like, I really don't want to do this. I never want to do this. I never want to do this. But they're just been so interesting. Um, they're like human behavior work culture books. Uh, so I'm going to recommend the one I like the most, which is Creativity, Inc., Uh, overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration. I'm going to say that again, that stand in the way of true inspiration, just so you don't miss the kind of moment I'm in now, which is a moment (laughs) about true inspiration. Um, But, but, um, but it's been so much fun and I'm collecting them. And so I want to say listeners, if you are the type of person, this is like when I asked for mystery novels, like I just discovered the thing that the whole world does. The creativity ink book is actually about Pixar. Um, But if you are the kind of person who reads business books and are into them, will you please, please also send me some recommendations because um, this moment is not going to last very long. But if you if you like read books for work like this about like how to create good work cultures, that's the question that I'm interested in. Will you please uh, tweet them at Hannah Rosen and tell me what your favorites are? Hannah, that one is is co-written right by Amy Wallace, who's like a wonderful journalist. I wonder if that's why it's so good. I don't know. It's just it's just like it's just it's just it like solved a real problem for me, which is like I I was really stuck on the idea of whether certain kinds of non hierarchical working cultures were womany. And, like, I was just kind of stuck on that problem. Like, is this just something that women would create if they got together? And is that a good thing? Why do I feel so much, like, hesitation and sort of slight shame about that? Is that, like, like, do I just need, like, a bunch of men from Pixar to kind of validate that 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 kind of work culture is good and creates good work? And so that is actually the question I'm puzzling Hmm. over. Like, can you create a non-hierarchical, a kind of, uh, of, like, like, collaborative, supportive, 
of work culture, which is not that hierarchical? And, and is that a thing? Like, is that a thing for success? Or are you just doing that because you want to avoid hierarchy? Anyway, those are the questions that I'm thinking through in my head. Um, as our season winds down, I have space to think about things like this. So, uh, so anyway, so it's been it's been a real revelation to me that book, particularly because 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 Pixar is structured in, in almost the same way that we are a very similar way. So it's just it's like you know, thank God that the men have validated my position; <laughs> otherwise, I couldn't live with myself. So it's been it's been good. Noreen, what do you have? I'm also going to recommend a podcast. I don't think I've recommended it on here which I don't know why I haven't because it brings me so much pleasure. Um, it's a ringer podcast called Jam Session. Um, Jam stands for Juliet and Amanda, Amanda Domins and Juliet Littman. Um, Amanda is a friend of mine from when she worked at New York Magazine. It is a just really funny, smart uh, podcast basically about celebrity, um, but it dissects it in a smart way. And it also is sort of my micro demographic of people in their 30s who care about a certain version of culture. Like they go in really deep on the real estate choices of various celebrities, um, you know, what it means when someone has a spread in architectural digest. Uh, it, it, um, they're confused by the Kardashians and yet keep tabs on them. <laughs> um, it's, if you want some sort of intelligent, if you don't read Us Weekly, but you want like sort of that hit of, um, puzzling over Us Weekly with someone smart, I would recommend this, uh, jam session on the Ringer Network. That sounds great. Sounds really fun. I know a lot of people who would love that. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks as ever to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, for production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. You know, we always love to hear from you, or you can tweet at us individually at Hannah Rosen, at Noreen Malone, or you can tweet at Marsha at, at Dr. M. Chatlin, and that's spelled D R M C H A T E L A I N. For Marsha and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and the Waves will be back next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.